So we'll cultivate our motivation. Last week I spoke of uh, doing Lamrim meditations and then complementing them with bodhicitta and uh, meditation on emptiness. And so someone requested that I lead a meditation on the um, six vaults of samsara in general, this week talking about bringing in bodhicitta and next week bringing in emptiness. Okay, so first we contemplate the six uh, faults of samsara in terms of ourselves and uh, really looking at our lives and seeing that these six describe our actual situation. So first is that there's no certainty in our lives. We want things to be predictable, schedulable, plannable, consistent, and yet uh, there's no certainty that any of that will happen. As we can't control all the causes and conditions that make things occur. So think about, make some examples in your life of uncertain situations and the how they relate to the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of samsara. Really feel that they're unsatisfactory and you want to be free of this kind of fault of lack of certainty. And second, in samsara, there's no satisfaction. There's so many things that we want, that we crave, that we seek. Not only material possessions, but emotional states, status within society, and so on. And yet, we work so hard to get these things. And yet, even when we get them, there's no satisfaction in it. The mind always wants more, wants better. So again, think of situations in your life where this is your experience. Then the third and the fourth go together. In samsara we have to die and leave our body repeatedly. Not the most fun thing, not something we look forward to. And then after that, we have to be reborn repeatedly into a new body, into a new situation where we don't understand what is happening to us, what is going on around us. And we're really at mercy of whatever conditions we're in, whatever people are around. So having to die and be reborn repeatedly. 
again and again without end if we don't practice. And then fifth, we change status repeatedly. So in the vastness of samsara, sometimes we're born in the upper realms, sometimes in the lower realms, sometimes in a comfortable situation, sometimes in a very unfortunate one. So there's no certainty there. We continually change our position in samsara. It's not like we consistently go upwards. And then even within one life, we get used to having a certain position or a certain status or whatever in society where whereby people treat us in a certain way and we have certain benefits or certain disadvantages. And then that doesn't say stay stable either. We can be rich in one part of our life, poor in another part, healthy in one part, unhealthy in another. Have lots of friends during one part of our life and feel quite deserted in another part. So we're constantly changing position or status, no certainty there. Having to constantly adapt to different situations and circumstances. And then last, there's no reliable friends, nobody who's going to accompany us on our life's journey, no matter how many people are around us at one particular time. Because we're born alone and we die alone, even if we're surrounded by other people. Yeah, the experience of birth happens to us alone our experience of birth, our experience of death, of aging, of anything, is our experience alone. And none of our friends can really understand it. They can not uh, change the situation for us. As we're experiencing the results of our own actions, So if I'm thinking of these six, then you develop a very strong feeling, uh, an aspiration to be free of samsara. So now think that all other living beings, the ones you like, the ones you don't like, the ones you don't know, they're all in the same predicament as you are and aspire for them to be free of samsara and to be free of the uncertainty, the lack of uh, satisfaction, having to die repeatedly and take rebirth repeatedly. <clears throat> May they be free of 
the constantly changing status and being without friends that accompany you as you are born, as you die, who can take your experiences away from you and the awful ones away from you and give you pleasant experiences. So see that in, in terms of everybody else around you. They're all in that situation. And then think, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if they could be free of samsara as well. And then based on that wish for everybody to be free of samsara, then aspire to become a fully awakened Buddha so that you can bring that about. So we went through the six points rather quickly. You could spend more time on them when you do it. But that's the way that you would integrate bodhicitta with that. Yeah. Did it affect your mind some way? Can you see how uh, when you hear some of the defaults of samsara, you can say, yeah, that's really true. But part of your mind is kind of protected from the impact of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, that happens, but so far so good. <laughs> it won't change. <laughs> I'm special. None of that will happen to me. Okay, so yeah, so with all the longer meditations, this is you know, whatever you do, then at the end, you know, to bring in bodhicitta, think this is what's going on for everybody, or this is what all these, you know, how wonderful it would be if all these people understood this kind of thing and changed their lives accordingly. Uh, and yet their minds are so closed. Even though we have the most open minds, don't we? With no resistance in them at all. <laughs> okay, so we'll continue from where we were. Okay, we are on page 157. Yeah. Talking about activities. So yesterday we uh, last week we finished talking about, you know, making requests and dedication. Then we started talking about what you do in the break time. You know, moderate sleep, moderate food, um, you know, keeping the body healthy, keeping the mind happy, uh, using the thought training, these gatas, uh, to remind ourselves and to transform even small actions into the path. Okay. 
So now here's our daily life activities. During your daily activities, continue to contemplate the Lamrim topics. Yeah, so don't just dedicate the merit and say, okay, done that. What's to eat? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Some people go through the Lamrim topics sequentially, seeing everything they encounter in one day in terms of the topic of meditation that's that morning. Doing this makes it easier to return to the experience of these topics in the, the following meditation sessions. So if you meditate, let's say, on the defects of samsara like we just did in the morning, then all day you practice watching and the people around you, the experiences, and seeing the defects of samsara in, you know, technicolor as they're happening around you all, all the time. And that is very powerful because that's lived experience rather than just intellectual contemplation, okay? Because you see, I have that experience. Other people have it, you know. We're all complaining what's wrong with the country. What's wrong with the country? We all have this experience, you know, of these six and not realizing that it's the fault of ignorance then, you know, we continue trying to uh, get four of the eight worldly dharmas and get rid of the other four. Yeah. In break times, be mindful of your precepts and ethical values, remembering them throughout the day, and apply introspective awareness to monitor if you are living according to them. Okay, so this one's really, really important because, you know, we can meditate in the morning on a certain topic and then say, okay, you know, like these six, you know, this is my experience and I want to get out of samsara and, you know, I need to purify and I need to create merit and I need to study the teachings and really apply myself to do this. And then you get up and then, you know, you just made some resolves about what you're going to do during the day, and then you forget them immediately. Okay, so there's no mindfulness there. Or even if you remember the, the values and principles and the ethical um, precepts and so on, yeah, when we're going around our day, are, are we applying introspective awareness and really monitoring what am I feeling? What am I saying? What am I doing? Yeah, what am I thinking? Uh, and really applying the, the Dharma to our life like that. Okay. So in this way, your mind will be in a wholesome state when you next meditate. Yeah, that's why the, the break time is so important. Because if we let everything go and then our mind, you know, goes in the opposite direction into its old habits. Then when we sit down to meditate, we have to recreate, you know, what we did in the first session again. Yeah. And uh, whereas if during the break time, 
we really try and remember it and apply it and see things from that perspective. Then when we sit down again, it's right there, you know, in our mind and can be very effective. However, if break times are passed in distraction, gossiping, singing, reading magazines, nobody reads magazines anymore, you know, um, how about uh, texting, uh, checking Facebook, okay, or watching violent films? Okay. These images and memories will plague your meditation. Please observe your own experience to see if this is true. Yeah, so watch and see. Yeah. Okay. Now, the next section is making requests, receiving blessings, and gaining realizations. Okay, so we touched on this a few weeks ago. We're coming back to it now because it's something that uh, is difficult to explain and to understand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the topic of requesting and receiving inspiration from the Buddhas is not easy to understand, so I would like to explain it further. To gain realizations of the path, we need to create the causes, both the principal causes and the cooperative conditions that support those principal causes. The principal causes to progress on the path are receiving teachings from a qualified teacher, reflecting and meditating on them, and putting them into practice in daily life. Creating these main causes is essential. Without our sincere and consistent practice, our mind won't be transformed, even if all the Buddhas came before us. Okay, so you think, if, you know, if you read some of the scriptures, especially the Pali Sutras, uh, you know, you where you really get a feeling of the Buddha as a human being dealing with human beings, yeah, and how they treat him, and what they expect of him, and and so on, yeah, um, yeah. Because often we we think, oh, you know, everybody treats the Buddha so well. Okay, so, um, yeah, so we need to, to create those main causes of hearing, thinking, and meditating on the Dharma. Now, it's very interesting, you know, because uh, sometimes you meet people who think that somehow they don't need to do that. Yeah, that somehow uh, studying the Dharma isn't so important, Having a relationship with a qualified spiritual mentor isn't very, isn't necessary. You can teach yourself, you can read books, you can figure things out from your own experience. Yeah. And uh, even you try and talk to those people, you can't get through. Yeah. They have a certain view, and, and that's it. So, uh, you know, to check in our own mind. We hear teachings and to see, you know, do we really take them in? So I'm not advocating blindly following everything 
that we hear. Okay, I'm advocating really thinking about what we hear and think about why the, the sages, why the great masters recommended doing that. And if we can understand that, then it becomes easier for us to follow suit because we understand why, you know, here are these great beings who achieved what we want to achieve, who consider this important for these and such reasons, and then it's easier for us to follow it, okay? So to really stop and, and think about it, you know, for each of our precepts, stop and think, you know, why did this Buddha make this precept? Read the origin stories in the Vinaya, you know? What affliction was the Buddha trying to handle? Yeah. And if you think society's crazy now, Read what some of his disciples did. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And, you know, how the Buddha dealt with it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, unless we try to understand like this, even if all the Buddhas are here, well, they're not going to be able to get through. You know, you see that in the Pali Canon. You know, people will come and kind of, you know, who's this guy? They say he's the Tathagata. What does that mean? You know, he's sitting there looking at his navel. Why doesn't he go get a life? Yeah, there's so much excitement in the world. He should do something exciting instead of sitting under a tree. Okay, so unless our minds are receptive, really, you know, all the Buddhas can be here. I mean, His Holiness Dalai Lama could be here teaching us. And, uh, oh, I gotta say, this really, when I see sometimes in His Holiness's teachings, there was one teaching we were at, you were there, and, uh, and, uh, we had the fortune of sitting up front, and there were some other people who also were sitting up front, and they were in front of us, actually, some lay people. And in the teachings, they were walking in and out all the time. It was amazing, you know, during almost every session. Yeah, you know which teaching I'm talking about? Yeah, and there were people we knew that we were friends with, you know, this is, there's no way to get through, you know, that you're here, sit here, get the whole transmission, even if you don't understand all of it, yeah, and they would, you know, go out and stretch their legs and come back in and, you know, do this and that, and, you know, it's very interesting, so, you know, you see that happening, and then you look at yourself and say, well, when have I done that? You know, I've been in teachings, and I've tuned out. Maybe I haven't walked in and out of the room like they did. Maybe I did. And, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I did walk in and out, or maybe I just tuned in and out. Yeah, so... Yeah, to, to really think about that.
the cooperative conditions that help the principal causes to ripen into the resultant realizations of the path may be external or internal. External cooperative conditions include being in the presence of spiritual mentors. Okay, so these are situations, external situations, where it's easy to create virtue and it's easy um, for, uh, for the seeds you've planted in your mind to ripen into experiences. Okay, so one is being in the presence of our spiritual mentor, staying at a holy place, such as a monastery or a temple, or any of the pilgrimage sites that we often uh, go to, living with other sincere Dharma practice, practitioners. So that can really help us too. You know, think about the difference uh, when you've stayed in a layperson's house for a period of time and tried to practice there. And then when you're here, and the people who are guests at the Abbey, they really see the difference, you know. We always hear them them comment on it. We kind of take the situation here for granted, yeah, which isn't so good. But uh, sometimes it's good, you know, when you leave, then you really check, gee, is it easy to practice in this other environment? Okay, so living with other sincere practitioners uh, who inspire you? Because when we see other people practicing, then we want to practice. Where there's a daily schedule, everybody does something, then we join in. Okay, and meditating in front of an image of the Buddha. And I, you know, that makes a difference, I think. You know, when you sit down and you're sitting in front of an image of the Buddha versus you sit down and there's the computer. On the other side of the room, or there's, you know, the dirty dishes, or there's, uh, you know, your desk with everything you have to do. It's it's easier meditating in front of a Buddha. So an analogy is helpful to understand how an external condition can help to deepen our Dharma understanding. If we know nothing about ecology, we won't understand much by hearing an expert respond to questions about it. But if we already have some background, yet lack clarity on this subject, the words of an expert will dispel our doubts and clarify our understanding. So I could see this very vividly on Tuesday when the acousticians came here. So there, uh, we, there was a discussion about the AV and the electricity, and they were talking about Cat 5 and Cat 6, and, and I, I said to them, I said, I, can't, I don't understand what you're talking about. I just think of our cats, you know, and do, are we going to have five? Are we going to have six? <laughs> yeah. But then other people at the table... You know, we're really understanding what these guys were saying, and it was really enhancing their knowledge of the situation and, you know, abilities to make good choices. So this is exactly what it's talking about, you know. If you don't understand much, 
you know, which I didn't, then they were talking about all these things. I can't remember much except the number of cats. And, you know, and it didn't help me at all. But I think, you know, Venerable Tarva and Venerable Damcha and Venerable Somten came out of that, you know, oh, yeah, now we have some ideas how we need to go about doing this. Okay. So they knew a little bit going into the discussion. So by being with an expert, it enhanced it. So it's the same thing with our practice, yeah? If we've had some teachings before, when we go to hear teachings on a topic, you know, it, we understand it so much better because we already have some background, okay? But if we just you know, don't bother to get the background. And we say, oh, that topic is, you know, uh, I don't understand it. It just doesn't make any sense. So I'm not even going to look at it, you know. I mean, who wants to read Pramnavartika? It's like, uh, you know, especially that translation. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's um, have a cup of tea. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> then, you know, you can hear from Navartika teachings many times, but many times, but they won't affect you. But if you make an effort just to get some basic understanding, you know, what in the world are they talking about? This proof of why the Buddha is a reliable person. Yeah, what are those different terms? What do they mean? Okay, let's just try and, you know, Get an idea of that and why that might be important. And, you know, just you know the terms, you know some general con concepts, then next time you hear it, you'll understand some, so much more. Similarly, we may have some knowledge about a Dharma topic, but don't understand it well. If someone who has meditated deeply on the topic discusses it, the combination, listen, the combination of our knowledge and the words of a compassionate and wise person will give rise to an understanding that we did not have before. So you see, it's two things, our previous knowledge and our present interest and somebody who is compassionate and wise teaching us. So those two things can bring about more understanding. And you can see that very clearly in your life. So this is actually one reason why I emphasize to people, you know, if there's no other way to get Dharma teachings, listen online. Yeah, but if you can go to be, you know, with a group and a teacher and listen live, do that, because it's a very different experience. Yeah. Okay. The basic cause is our own knowledge. The other person's words lift our understanding to another level. Okay. So you can see how that works. You know, and sometimes it happens. You've studied something, and you know, there's things that you puzzle about, and it's not real clear. And then you're listening to teachings, and suddenly the teacher just clarifies what you've been wondering about for a long time. It's just like, 
oh yeah <laughs> you know and it's like you couldn't figure it out on yourself by yourself but you know but somebody else saying it it's like oh yeah of course that isn't so difficult hmm? our daily dharma studies and practices establish the groundwork so that being in holy sites or being in the presence of our spiritual mentors will affect experiences and realizations in our minds. We may recite the verses to generate bodhicitta every day, but not feel much when we do, even though we have admiration for bodhicitta. Then, one day, while repeating the same verses in the presence of our spiritual mentor, the words have a totally new effect on our mind, and deep feelings of compassion and altruism blossom in us. Huh? So you can see, you know, we we recite it every day, you know, in the morning and the evening. Yeah, but then when your teacher's giving the bodhisattva out, you know, you focus a little bit more and you listen to what the words are saying, and it's like, Wow, yes, that's exactly what I want to develop. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we may study and reflect on emptiness often, but reach a mental roadblock that we cannot seem to get beyond. When we meditate on emptiness under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, that obstacle disappears and our understanding of emptiness becomes clearer. The inspiration of our spiritual mentor and the blessings of the sight of the Buddha's awakening are cooperative conditions. The indispensable principal cause is our effort to practice sincerely. Without this, such experiences do not magically happen. So you can see when they talk about you know, inspiration, blessings. It's a cooperative thing that's going on. We're not, we're not just saying, you know, please grant blessings and I'll sit here and, you know, get, you know, the blessings are going to come. And then I go, oh, wow, I got it, you know. Uh, and now I can go tell my, all, all my friends about it, you know. Uh, no, it it has to do with what the energy we've put in beforehand, mm -hmm. and you know, and due to the energy we put in beforehand, then at that time, you know, what our state of mind is, because yeah. you can go to teachings, and uh, you know, and you're with your teacher, and that's really good. But your mind is in this weird state, and you go in, and you, your first thought is, I wonder how long this is going to last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I like this. It's interesting, but there's some other things I want to do. And when you go in with that kind of attitude, uh, you may say all the words and repeat them, you know, but they don't mean anything to you. Yeah, or you listen to teachings and it doesn't touch you. Yeah, but then that's precisely why we spend time at the beginning generating our motivation, because that makes our mind much more receptive. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Instead of, okay, well, the teachings usually last until, um, well, sometimes she stops at 8.30, sometimes she goes on to quarter to nine or even ten to nine. I wonder what she's going to do today, you know. Is there some way to muzzle her? (laughs) Yeah, I really was planning on going to bed early tonight. (laughs) Okay. Oh, what's this? Okay. If we have knowledge of the Buddha's qualities, as well as strong confidence that awakening is possible, our mind is more receptive to the Buddha's awakening influence at pilgrimage sites. We cannot force ourselves to have faith in the Three Jewels. Stable faith is gained through learning and reflection. Yeah, we can't say, I have faith, I have faith. You know, that's not going to make it come. If a person has little interest in the Dharma or minimal faith in the Buddha, although a good imprint is left on her mind stream by going to Bodhaya, very little else will happen. She may spend a lot of time drinking tea and visiting tourist shops. When you think of how many thousands of people go to Bodhaya every year, yeah, and how many you know, spend the, you know, most of their time at all the tchotchke shops looking for little Buddhist souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Or hanging out, you know, in the restaurants with their friends, talking. <clears throat> Internal cooperative conditions include purification and collection of merit, as explained above in the seven limb prayer, as well as requesting our spiritual mentors, Buddhas, meditation deities, and bodhisattvas to bless and inspire our minds. Several factors, such as the qualities of the person or persons we request and how we make the request, play a role. Okay. So it's not just, you know, requesting... uh, uh, you know, to Frank and Leslie, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Realized beings possess marvelous qualities that enable them to influence others in a positive way. Yeah, I really feel this when His Holiness teaches. It's like there is something definitely quite special when he's teaching. Yeah. And my other teachers as well. It's like, oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. This last visit, uh, we were able to have some sessions with Samdung Rinpoche and Geshe Peldon Drakpa. And there you sit at the feet of two amazing teachers. And, you know, the effect of their, you feel the effect of their practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. 
contrast, ordinary people and worldly gods cannot inspire your, our mind very much. If you visualize President Franklin Roosevelt and make, see, I told you, this is the example he gave, and make a strong request to realize great compassion, what happens? <laughs> I mean, he was a pretty good president as far as presidents go, you know. Can you imagine requesting President Trump, you know, please may I generate compassion? <laughs> yeah. Maybe psychologically someone could be helped a little, but aside from that, nothing else occurs because the present the person you request for spiritual inspiration is an ordinary being. Contrarywise, due to their great accumulation of merit and the force of their boundless compassion, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have a certain power or energy that can affect our minds in a positive way. And they say that uh, when you hear teachings from someone who has meditated strongly or has realizations of those teachers, that the teachings make a much stronger impression on your mind than when uh, you hear them from just ordinary you know, Joe Tashi, okay, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you know, th there's a difference, in, and you can feel it, and so that uh, is, is something to encourage us that if we want to benefit sentient beings, then we really need to gain the realizations um, because then even if we explain something simple in the Dharma, the force of our words will have a great uh, effect on the other person. Yeah. Whereas if we, uh, you know, we're just repeating words out of the book or reading the text, then people don't get much. Yeah. I am... Um, uh, I received something recently from uh, Josh and, and Diana, you know, Geshe Topke's book on the um, uh, Rice Seedling Sutra came. It's in my room. <laughs> I will bring it back here. But I was so excited to see it because many years ago, uh, Geshe had asked me to read the, the manuscript, and I did. And, and I really encouraged him to publish it because... I said it's so clear and it has so many citations from, you know, the great masters. So when all of a sudden this book appeared here, I was really happy. So I wrote to Josh and, and Deanna because they're the translators, you know, uh, who did it and said, told them how appreciative I was of what Geshe did and what they did, Geshe did and what they did. And uh, they sent back a couple of pictures of which I will forward to all of you once I get my email figured out. <laughs> I can make group emails on the new computer, which, by the way, thank you very much for. It's really incredibly helpful. Um, anyway, uh, in, in that, they were saying that uh, one of Geshe students, I think another Geshe, 
they were they were commenting that Geshe Topke, uh, when he teaches, yeah, he'll often say, "Oh, the text, you know, it says this, but uh, that's not quite how it is. You know, it should be like this." And then he'll explain it, and how that other Geshe said. Then you really know the quality of a great teacher because he's not just reading the text, yeah. But you could tell he's thought about it and is commenting on it, sharing his own reflections. Yeah. It's like the um, the first time I had uh, Ivantika initiation. Um, uh, from Ling Rinpoche. It wasn't the first time I had it, but the first time from him. And then he gave commentary afterwards. I had a feeling that he was just sitting there being Dorje Chingche, you know, and saying, okay, this arm's holding this, this arm's holding this. On my right side is this, on my left side is that. You know, the building I'm in, is, it looks like this, and, you know, the crocodiles are like this, and the jewels hanging from their mouths are like, just like he was, you know, like if I were sitting here and saying, oh, there's a white wall there, and there's an altar in the corner of a statue of the Buddha. You know, that's how... It felt like he was describing the mandala. Yeah? So it's like, then you know, you know, something, <laughs> yeah, that somebody's really, this is the previous Ling Rinpoche, uh, you know, was, is, yeah. <laughs> okay. People who accept the Mahayana doctrine of the four Buddha bodies have a sense of the abilities the awakened ones possess to guide and inspire us. Even if we see the Buddha as a historical person who lived on this earth, it is clear that he was an extraordinary human being who accumulated great merit and had profound realizations. Okay, so on the outside, even if he looks like Joe Tashi, something special is going on there. Okay? The depth of the Buddha's compassion and the extent of his skillful means and wisdom are evident in his life story. And when you read the Pali Suttas and you watch how he answers people's questions, you, know, you can see that. Yeah. A person of such magnificent qualities must have abilities to benefit others that the rest of us lack. Yeah, Buddha, he was amazing. You know, it's like sometimes in the morning, you know, after he uh, did his morning practice and then he was going to go on Pindip Pot, he would just kind of check around for a while and, you know, see if there's any other... Uh, wandering mendicants or disciples, you know, between him and where he's going on Pindapot. And sometimes he'd, he'd think, okay, I'll just stop by and see them. So he would, you know, start walking, and then he would go and and talk to the the Nirgranthas, those are the Jains. And he'll come, have a conversation, he'll walk up, and they'll be in the middle of talking about something, and he'll say, what are you guys talking about? And they'll tell him. And then he'll you know, comment on it, yeah? Or, uh, you know, he'll, he'll 
bump into all sorts of different people who will ask him questions. Uh, and you see how he responds to those people. Uh, or the kings come with their problems, you know. There aren't many stories of queens coming with their problems. Um, <laughs> the kings were the queen's problem. <laughs> fix, yeah, fix, have the Buddha fix the kings and then the queens won't have any problems. I don't know. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, but you can really see how he was able to tune into different people. Uh, people, uh, oh, I read that. Um, in our daily practice, we request all holy beings in the merit field to come to the place where we meditate. From their side, invitations are unnecessary. You know, you are cordially invited to attend my meditation session at 5.30 every morning. Be prompt. <laughs> no need to RSVP. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We don't need to invite the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. But I find when we do the incense offering, that's what we're doing with the incense offering. We're transforming the environment into this beautiful, pure place. And then asking all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to come and witness us little beings trying to create some virtue. But that's really what's going on in the, you know, the incense offering. So the invitations are unnecessary. Yeah, because their minds are, know what's going on anywhere. These requests are done to benefit us so that we turn our attention to them and feel their presence. So when we say, you know, like tomorrow morning we'll be taking the eight Mahayana precepts and we say, Buddhism, Bodhisattvas, please pay attention to me. We're really saying, me, please pay attention to the Buddhism, Bodhisattvas. Okay. But beings who lack spiritual realizations cannot come, even if we invite them, unless we send a car to pick them up. We may sincerely pray for President Roosevelt to come to our meditation place, but he cannot do so. If we invite worldly gods and spirits to come, they will not know an invitation has been extended, and even if they know, there is not a lot they can do to help us gain Dharma realizations. How does someone gain the ability to bless another's mind? On the mundane level, we see that some people have unusual abilities, such as the ability to hypnotize others. From the Buddhist viewpoint, this is due to karma they created in previous lives. So people have, you know, different abilities to see things or sense things or what. Yeah, for ordinary beings, this is all due to karma. Okay, it's not due to spiritual realizations, it's due to karma. If, if some ordinary people have the ability to influence the minds of others in an unusual way, then surely those with great spiritual realizations and compassion must be able to do so. Yeah? 
So if you, you know, know people, common people who have some kind of spiritual ability to sense things or whatever, yeah, but they're a common person. They don't have realization. Surely if, you know, they can influence your mind in a good way, then certainly the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can. But the Buddhas, the the other person is right there in front of us. And the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, they're in front of us, but we don't see them. So we think the other person has more abilities. Yeah. Do you remember many years ago when we went to that, what was it? It was like a fair of all the new age things in, in yeah, in Spokane and Coeur Anyway, so somebody told us we could have a booth there. So it was, you know, this big convention center kind of thing and all these people, you know, with crystals and magic things and magic potions and all sorts of stuff, okay? So we found our little place, and we had fortune tellers on both sides, except they weren't called fortune tellers. What are they called? Um, Psychics. Psychics, yes. Fortune tellers, like that superstition. They were psychics. Yes, and you got a spiritual reading from them. So... People would, you know, I think there was a woman on this side and a man on that side, or maybe, yeah, so maybe the opposite. Huh? He was an astrologist. He was an astrologist, okay, and she was a psychic. Anyway, people would stop at their books, booths, and walk right past us. <laughs> you know, nobody cared about the Buddha's word. But But it was so interesting because this thing of somebody sitting in front of you, yeah, makes a difference. And also because their attention was focused on you. So I saw people with the psychic, you know, the woman on that side. And they were, you know, she was sitting there and they were like this. You know, they didn't miss one word. (laughs) of what she said, totally mesmerized, because she was talking about them, you know. In the past, you fell in love and broke up and were very hurt. And I'm going, hey, I could have told the guy the same thing. That happens to everybody. But, you know, nobody would, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen to anybody here who's never been in a relationship and that been broken up and, and it's been broken up and been hurt because of it. It's like, you know, I can tell you that too, you know, and they were just listening. And it was so, you know, and then they finished that, pay their money, you know, the more they paid, the more. Uh, uh, truth they got and then uh, they would walk right past us and go to the astrologer on the other side (laughs) yeah 
The power of the Buddha's realizations, compassion, and awakening activity alone is not enough to affect change in us. If the conditions are not ripe within us, very little occurs. Just as the sun shines everywhere, but only upturned vessels are filled with light, the Buddha's awakening influence is always present, regardless of whether we believe it exists. Uh, of whether we believe it exists, whether we practice the teachings, and whether we visualize the Buddhas and request their inspiration. So it's there, but we don't always realize it. From our side, doing these activities makes our mind more receptive to receive their awakening influence. Receiving inspiration is a dependent arising. It depends on the state of our mind as well as on the wisdom, compassion, and power of the awakened ones. Okay. How we make the requests is also important. The more focused and clear our visualization of the Buddha is, the more we feel that we are in his presence. This facilitates our experiencing the Buddha's inspiration and blessing. And it, you know, you can see that, yeah? I mean, just when you take the eight precepts, when you really think of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas there and you really want to take the eight precepts and, you know, it's like how, they're, they're so easy to keep and yet all this benefit comes from, you know, as you're, you're reading in the prayer, you receive the benefit. And, you know, and then you're really inspired to take them. Then it's a much different experience than when it's like, Oh, yeah, okay, got to take the precepts tomorrow. That means we only eat one meal a day. Oh, I really don't like those days. Better eat a lot of medicine meal today. Um, <laughs> you know? So, you know, our state of mind makes a big difference. Okay. Uh, the Buddhist concept of blessing and inspiration cannot be understood with sensory direct perception. It depends in part on our conviction in the possibility of awakening, and thus the possibility of developing the effortless, spontaneous awakening activities that can spark realizations in receptive beings. If we have confidence that we can awaken, it is not difficult to know that others have awakened before us and have gained these special abilities. In short, the deeper our refuge in the Three Jewels, the more we will make effort to transform our minds and the greater our receptivity to the Buddha's awakening activities will be. So there it is. Okay, so we can do something from our side to increase the benefit of the requests that we make. Yeah. Requesting the Buddha for inspiration to generate bodhicitta or realize emptiness is different than requesting an external creator for blessings. Buddhists with a proper understanding see the Buddha as our teacher. We know that the Buddha is not omnipotent that our past actions condition our present experiences, and that we are responsible for our actions. 
those petitioning an external creator believe that everything is in his hands and depend on his will. Although both Buddhas and those Buddhists and those of other faiths may request inspiration or blessing from holy beings to become more loving, their way of requesting, their notion of to whom they pray, and their understanding of the process of prayer differ a lot. Yeah, you can see that. Okay, so I think that's important, especially... Um, for people who who grew up in a theistic religion, where we have one idea of, uh, you know, asking for blessings or what whatever, I'm not quite sure what grace means. Judaism doesn't speak about that. What is grace? Does it have anything to do with requesting blessings? But when you were little, what did they tell you? Yeah. Yeah. Are you at? Did you ask for grace? No. As a child, it was like the the power was all on God's side. There, mm-hmm. so you were just supposed to like pray, and hopefully, He's listening and a little tapping. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't anything to do with our side. Our side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be good. Yeah, I understand the grace as the same as the blissful nectar. Hmm, that's how I see it. Oh, I see it. Okay, I see. It's like an inspiration, or in some ways, a, a oh, I had the word. Anyway, an intervention in some way mm-hmm. that that makes a situation softer or better or things change that you don't expect Mm -hmm. in a positive way. So it's the the hand or the grace of, by the grace of God. Okay. So and so happens. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's... It's External totally. It's it's quite external. Yeah. Yeah. So Jana online, she shares that, I was taught that grace is God making up the difference for what I lack in understanding or ability. Hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, then she goes on. And oh. then giving me some of that understanding and ability I lack when I ask him for it. Mm. It says here that grace is a gift from from Heavenly Father given through his Son, Jesus Christ. The word grace, as used in the scriptures, refers primarily to enabling power and scriptural healing offered through the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. No one can return to the presence of God without divine grace. Oh, so you better get that grace or you're sunk, huh? <laughs> huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two questions online? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first is from Jenna. Mm-hmm. She says, as I have been reflecting on these questions, I realize I have the following assumption. When someone, anyone, seeks truth or help to live virtuously, the Buddha has the ability to help and inspire and guide that person, Mm -hmm. and does. Is that true? Or do the Buddhas only inspire and bless someone who is opening their mind and heart to the Buddha specifically? 
So for example, someone from the Christian religion or scientist seeking truth is not aided mm -hmm. by Buddhists. Mm -hmm. And if not, then by what or who? What leads them to develop and grow in virtue? Oh, okay. Um, the Buddha, uh, he is, um, how do you say that? Uh, yeah, he's ecumenical. His blessings, inspiration go out to everybody, okay? And uh, nonpartisan, non exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally nonpartisan. And uh, and so that's why when they talk in the refuge section of the Lam Rim about the, the Buddha, they'll say that he will help somebody. Um, you know, they give the image of the Buddha sitting there and one somebody on one side cutting him and somebody on the other side uh, stroking him. And he will help both of those people equally. Okay, so from the... Buddha's side, his willingness to help and to benefit goes out everywhere, non, no discrimination, no bias at all. Whether people receive it or not is another question. Yeah. So it's like the, the radio is, is, you know, the radio station is broadcasting, but if you don't have your radio on, you're not going to pick up anything, yeah? Or if you have your radio on, but the volume is low, you'll get something, but not a lot, okay? If you're, you know, if all the other conditions from your side, you've set it up, and you're in front of the radio, and you're listening, and it's turned on, then, yeah, you, the, way, the radio waves that are going out everywhere uh, you can listen, yeah, to the program. So it's like that, yeah. You don't have to be Buddhist to benefit from uh, the Buddha's awakening influence, okay. However, you know, when you look, if somebody has a world, certain world views, that some world views are conducive, that make make you a receptive vessel. Some worldviews make you an unreceptive vessel. It's like, you know, some pots are upside down, some are halfway, some are right side up. So according to, you know, what's going on with the pot, uh, that amount of light can come in. So it's like that. And then the second question mm -hmm. has to do with refuge and bodhisattva vows. Mm -hmm. So this person says, is it the same? And someone who takes the vows in Buddhism, can we say that he or she is a bodhisattva? Okay. So when they say, is it the same, or what is what the same? Um, does it mean the same thing? Taking refuge and taking the bodhisattva vows? Yes. They're two different things. Okay. So... Uh, first, we take refuge, which is deciding that the Buddha is going to be our guide, the you know our teacher. The Dharma is going to be the view that we practice, and the Sangha are going to be our guides, our helpers, our assistants, and that. And so we're really deciding to become a, a Buddhist. Yeah. So refuge uh, can be taken on our own, just ourselves. Every time we do a practice, we always start out with a verse 
taking refuge. Um, but you can also take ref, do the refuge ceremony with the teacher, and at that time they give you the refuge and you recite some verses after them. And at that time also you have the opportunity to take some or all of the five lay precepts to abandon killing, stealing, unwise and unkind sexual behavior, lying, and taking intoxicants. Okay. So that's the first set of precepts that, that you do. Then, after a while, when you've really started practicing the bodhisattva teachings, then you can take the bodhisattva vows. But even before that, what you do is you usually uh, generate bodhicitta in a ceremony in the presence of your teacher without taking the bodhisattva vow. And then later, you, you know, when you feel ready to actually keep the bodhisattva ethical trainings, then you, you take the bodhisattva vow. Okay. And then what was the second part of that question? Uh, for someone who takes the vows in Buddhism, not clear which one, can we say they are a bodhisattva? Oh, no, it's not just taking the vow that makes you a bodhisattva, okay? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the state of your mind that makes you a bodhisattva. In the Chinese tradition, to encourage people, they will um, uh, often... You know, speaking to a big crowd, they'll say um, monastics and lay bodhisattvas. Okay, so I'm sure the lay people, you know, I don't know, maybe some of them are bodhisattvas, but probably, you know, a lot of them aren't. But it's a way of encouraging them by addressing them as bodhisattvas. But that doesn't mean that they're really bodhisattvas. Okay. It's like, I mean, we say that sometimes, too, when, um, yeah, when we want to praise somebody or whatever, we kind of bump them up. I mean, bump up the term that we use to, to address them. When you were talking about the incense offering, it made me realize that I would think at least half of the full ordination is inviting and requesting, mm. right? Actual teachers and then the three jewels, the entire lineage, just again and again and again. Please, please give me the precepts. Please, please, please. Mm -hmm. And what's actually from the Vinaya is like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's so much in the ceremony. Constantly requesting. Yeah. Because, yeah, <laughs> here's another good story. You know, uh, sometimes uh, in Dharamsala, they'll do soap ceremonies. Uh, well, where you will offer uh, soak and you repeat the, the soak offering verses, you know, maybe 108 times or 500 times, or, you know, you repeat them a lot, but the ceremony goes on all day, you know, offering soak again and again and again and again. You look shocked. But yeah, <laughs> uh, but that's what you do. So, one time somebody asked, you know, one of the Buddhas, one of the, the Geshis, one of the Lamas, like, why? Why do we say, keep saying the same thing again and again? And, and uh, the answer was, well, you know, when you're a little kid, if you really want something, you don't just ask mom and dad once. 
you ask again and again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, so he said, it's like that. And what it does is it's reinforcing to us how much to, to increase our wish or desire to gain certain realizations, okay, or develop certain qualities. So by making the request again and again, it's like saying, you know, can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream? Give me ice cream. Give me ice cream. I'll do anything you want to get the ice cream. I'll do anything you want to get the ice cream. Please, 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 you know. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, mom and dad are probably going to get you some ice cream after a while anyway. But the force of asking again and again, really, you know, it's like, I really want it. You know, my life depends on this ice cream. What? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Ken Ryu says, Venable, please come back to Asia again, again, and again. <laughs> and you come to the Abbey again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. People often, when I teach places, they'll say, please come again. And I usually say, I'll come again if you come again. Because it depends on all of us showing up. If people invite me, but then they don't come to the teachings, then what's the use of me going? Yeah? So it's like, I'll come if you come. Yeah? And if, if you, you request, you better be ready. Yeah? Yeah? Don't make a, a date to, uh, you know, go on vacation or go to another teacher's teachings or do something else, you know, that time. And this has happened on some occasions. Yeah? So, um... He says, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> good. Come quickly. <laughs> okay, good. So I think we'll end here. <laughs>